Hi, and welcome. I'm Steve Martorano, and this is the Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the Behavioral Corner. Please hang around a while. Hey, hi, everybody, and welcome to uh, the Behavioral Corner. I'm your friend and uh, host and guide here, Steve Martorano. What we do is we hang. I thought finally found something I'm relatively good at, and that's hanging on a street corner, meeting interesting people. That's what the Behavioral Corner is all about. It is uh, underwritten by our partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. We rely upon them for uh, a lot of uh, insight and guidance when we uh, when we do the corner, and that's certainly going to be the case today uh, with one of their people from their New Haven uh, facility. So we thank them for that. You know, before we get started and I introduce our two guests, we have the tendency as a society to focus on one thing at a time. Uh, it's just simple enough. If the thing's big enough, it takes all of our attention. There is an, this year, there is an opioid crisis that's justifiably got our attention. Now, of course, you know, there's the mother of all uh, attention grabbers, and that's COVID-19. So we have a pandemic that attracts all of the attention and all of the media and all of our concerns. It's understandable. But sometimes what happens is that our attention is obviously diverted away from other problems and uh, never more so than when it comes to mental health. There is now and has been for some time a flat out crisis in mental health in this society that touches on all those other areas. Uh, And nowhere is that crisis more vividly obvious than in minority communities for a whole lot of reasons. That shouldn't be surprising to anybody. But we're going to take a deep look at what those racial disparities kind of impact they're having in mental health as a disease and mental health care as a system in the program today and ask the question, why? Why is this still going on and what's being done to make it better? To that end, we welcome a great friend of this program, someone I met a couple of years ago up in New Haven, Jackie James. Uh, Jackie James is the Director of Public Relations for Retreat Behavioral Health in uh, Southern Connecticut in New Haven. She has had a lifetime involvement in the public service in her community in New Haven in a a multitude of areas, uh, both in the private and the public sector. I'll let Jackie bring you up to date on that. She's done us a great good favor by introducing us to a new friend to the Behavioral Corner, Germano Kimbrough. Uh, joins us. He uh, also has spent the better part of his adult life with as a, uh, a community act. This is a great phrase that I've always loved. He is a change agent. He's been involved in at the grassroots level in many of the areas we're going to talk about today, most recently through something called the Ministerial Health Fellowship Advocacy Coalition, spearheading a COVID-19 crisis program that he's a counselor in right now. I want to thank and welcome Jackie and uh, Germano to the show. I'm out of breath. Okay. (laughs) I'm out of breath. Wait a minute. Let me, let me drink some of my orange soda that I got from the store. (laughs) Jackie, how are you? It's good to see you again. I'm doing well. Thank you. I am doing well, despite. Despite. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Remember when the statement, how you doing was a, was a sort of rhetorical question. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now you got to stop and let the other person answer, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Jackie, let me let me see if I got my definitions right. There's a mental health crisis in this country, correct? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And 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 we've had a mental health crisis for many years, for decades. But I think COVID has kind of um, lent 
itself to just exhausting, you know, the mental health crisis to some extent. Yeah, this disease, in addition to everything else it has done, has made everything else um, worse. Yes. Um, uh, and magnified the problem. And we mentioned, uh, and I, I know uh, Germano had, has done work in the field of substance abuse and overdoses and everything. COVID has had a devastating effect on that aspect of uh, the community, correct? Well, without a doubt. Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. There was just a, a, a presentation this morning where they said that uh, substance abuse and mental health has increased from 32 to 53 percent. So, I mean, anything that was underlying has really come to the surface. And so when you had the average, you know, co-worker and colleague that just was managing, you know, stress on a regular basis is now, you know, find himself in a pandemic fatigue. You know, and so it's uh, typical of what's happened in 9-11 and anthrax and other kinds of disasters that happened around the country. We said we were going to take a look at the disparities in the mental health system in minority communities because it's important. Uh, and it's always both depressing and sobering that whenever we talk about a problem that affects the entire society, we have to make note that it is affecting certain segments of the population much, much deeper and much more profoundly for a lot of reasons. The disparities that I've been reading about are pretty well documented. Can I begin with a couple and you tell me if I'm, I'm hitting the right notes here? First and foremost, and either one of you, both of you can answer, there's just a simple lack of access in those minority communities, correct? There's a lack of access, but I still think there's a issue with regards to institutional instructional racism. I think that people of color are disproportionately on the front lines, right? So there's a lot of inequalities that's just not being taken into account when it comes to addressing some of these issues with regards to mental health and COVID, right? Yep. Um, yep. I think that's the reality. And I think th some of those realities are really not being talked about or addressed. Yeah. Jumana, what's your experience in the streets and everything? I mean, look, where I come from, I got a minute clinic a minute away. I got my doctor who I pick up the phone. I mean, I got a lot of access. Um, it's not always the case in the neighborhoods you go to, right? But I think that, you know, it, it, the effects have been insidious. Um, so we were already in an epidemic of with, uh, you know, the opioid crisis, you know, throughout America. But I think like, you know, Malcolm said, you know, when America gets a cold, you know, Black America gets the flu. We have become accustomed to, you know, dealing with uh, adversity. And so uh, I don't think that people really took the pandemic as, as serious as they should, you know, for whatever reason, minority and people that are affected by poverty, you know, have been uh, accustomed to just doing the next best thing, you know, in, in terms of survival. It's just unfortunate that uh, like Jackie mentioned, you know, just uh, systemically and, and institutional, there are just some pieces that are not in place prior to this. And so it's like the perfect storm. I mean, these issues are compounded when you take the issues of poverty that face, you know, um, Black America, and then you put an epidemic on top of it, and then a pandemic, you know, it, it's almost like the perfect storm. And so there's no question why, you know, we're dying at a higher rate and, and, and not getting vaccinated and the hesitancy you know, coming out of uh, a political era that we just came out of. I think that just, you know, it's just a real rough time. And so when I'm out there, 
because I have a relationship with the community because they've seen me, you know, kind of progress um, through many stages of, um, of life, you know, I, I become a trusted messenger. And so I don't convince or uh, try to sell anybody one way or another, whether or not to take the vaccination, whether or not to wear a mask, I present the best information and let them make their own decisions. And, and it is tough, it's uphill battle. And, um, you know, they have the same needs that they had prior to the pandemic. You know, it does become a tough sell. Um, mm-hmm. so a lot of uh, success you know, working through the houses of faith. And that, I think that was one of the reasons that, you know, the Ministry of Health Fellowship has been so successful because, you know, the church has been kind of the backbone and the cornerstone and the foundation of, you know, the black community. And so uh, they have been pushing to make sure that, you know, we have, you know, greater access Um They've, they've been doing a, a phenomenal job and they've been able to turn some of the, the churches into clinics and um, the elders up until this point have been, you know, more willing to come into the church for a vaccination as opposed to a site. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it Henry Louis Gates or Louis Henry Gates? I forget. He's doing a uh, PBS special on, on the history of the black church, which is, uh, it's going to be worth watching. They, I mean, they have always been there and uh, they're there again. Let me ask you, uh, with regard, I mean, you grew up in, uh, you both grew up in uh, Southern Connecticut, right? You're both from New Haven? Yes. So, you know, I don't have to tell you about the justifiable uh, suspicions that exist in communities like that when, you know, the larger society says, hey, you should do this. We need you to do this. In this case, it's, you know, mask up. And get this vaccination. When you talk to young uh, inside the community, Germano, are you getting a lot of pushback on that? Are they going, no, wait, I'm going to wait? Or what's going on? It's like pulling teeth. I mean, even with my own family, you know, I mean, they'll find the one reason why or one person that failed as to, you know, why not to uh, get vaccinated or why, you know, this this, uh, virus isn't real. And uh, it's just another thing that, you know, the government has put together to make money. Right. It, it's really tough. I mean, well, minority it's, folks it's, are not alone in that sort of, you know, golden age of suspicions of the government. But they have a particular bias because, you know, of the history of things like the Tuskegee experiments. And uh, that may have been 100 years ago, but it's still a real thing. Right. They, they're suspicious. Yes, suspicions are due to a lot of miseducation and um, a lack of education, right? So, and I don't think it's just a Black community. I think what we're also finding is that elderly um, amongst various racial backgrounds are also suspicious of the government and taking the COVID vaccine. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, right. I wonder how uh, philosophical uh, minority communities can be about the fact that they're uh, very often, almost always, at the end of lines and not at the head of lines to suddenly find themselves designated as essential workers when this thing hit. That must have been like, really? We're essential workers now. Did they roll with that? They just kept doing their jobs? What was the reaction you were, you were seeing from the minority communities at the beginning of this pandemic? Well, they couldn't afford to take a day off. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it- you know, they were essential workers. They couldn't afford to take take any day off, right? They had 
um, very little benefits, whether it was um, benefits from their work with regards to taking time off or medical benefits, right? Childcare was a major issue. Um, so it became a situation where everything was just beginning to fall apart in many people's lives, but they were considered essential workers, right? And companies, corporations got funding to provide some level of assistance and many of them did not, um, right? And, and they're still considered essential workers. In that vein, let, let me ask you both that if it's not also true that because of everything you just described, that community is less likely to even look to get help. So what I've seen and heard in, in the community where I am um, from, they have sought help. So I, I know with um, Black-owned businesses, the PPE um, loan program or grant program has been limited. The, the care program has been limited, right? Providing rental assistance has been limited and it's been limited because of access. It's been limited because it's bogged down by red tape. You know, it's difficult, right? So when you have a community that's already um, suspicious, when you have a community that's already burdened and laden with a whole lot of other things, then yeah, it becomes a bigger and broader issue. One of the, one of the things that we were talking about before we uh, before we got on the air is among the many things that uh, Germano is about. He's very active in uh, putting fathers back into the equation in these situations. Tell us about your work with uh, low income families and and fathers. Well, that that work began um, around the the end of um, time limited welfare. You know, where we had the Personal Work and Responsibility Act um, that Clinton put in place. And so we were trying to find a way to help uh, support women that were, were being placed on time limits. And so uh, there was no infrastructure. We found out that, you know, poor men and fathers need the same services that poor mothers needed. Uh, and that there were men that were engaged, yet they didn't participate in the formal child support or social service delivery system. They hadn't begin to receive them. And so being able to carve out pathways to access services for men and fathers became the kind of the, the first task. Um, but it was interesting because it was during the time I was doing my undergrad and um, I actually did a, a, a research project on how men access services. And so even though those men and fathers uh, had jobs, uh, they didn't take time off or go to the doctor until their health reached a, a chronic or acute state in that, you know, that research also showed that they receive health uh, in three ways. Uh, it was actually through uh, the military emergency room in jails, you know, and, and that work was published um, in the American uh, Medical Journal under the coloring of an African-American male crisis. Um, and so that work with father, I think was very significant. It was one of the things that uh, was probably most noted uh, in, in New Haven in terms of um, Black men really stepping up to the plate to meet the emotional, social, and financial responsibilities for their children. We actually changed the game, you know, like DCF now is a major partner. So we had these institutions that weren't talking to each other or they were looking at men and fathers as a wallet, you know, Department of Social Services, you know, where, you know, they received benefits or they was automatically um, giving child support, even the men that were incarcerated, how they were 
had these huge uh, rearages that just kind of crippled them, you know, of their life. And so we was able to develop legislation and, you know, change some policies and get a system that actually functioned, you know, to bring a family together. And, yeah. And work. Give these men not only the, uh, the means and the opportunity to support their family instead of just, as you say, grabbing their wallets yeah. uh, because because of the money. There's a huge relationship between successful outcomes in uh, minority situations and having two parents in the household, right? Father involvement is one of the, the key uh, most important factors in you know, healthy child development. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, you, you need both parents. You know, as I scan some of the stuff that I've been looking at with you, with you guys, Germano, uh, 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 one thing stood out. Tell me about the Ice House curriculum. What was that? Well, that's Jackie and I partnered. Uh, it just happened to be one of those times where she was a director of um, small business and economic development for the city. And I pitched her an idea and she bought into it. I told her I wanted to do a, a youth entrepreneurship program. I, you know, the city didn't have enough money for jobs. And I knew that, you know, every kid wasn't going to be able to job. I knew that, you know, uh, poverty was de definitely connected with violence. And if that we can reduce the poverty, we can re help reduce the violence and that, you know, kids need to learn to make their own money. And so we was able to partner with a um, the state uh, small business and, and economic development. Jackie could uh, chime in, but they came in with the Ice House curriculum and we was able to put together a youth entrepreneurship program and uh, was highly successful. In fact, you know, some of the ideas that, you know, the kids developed are implemented in the city now. Uh, they were taught how to monetize their ideas, but I was able to also be trained and certified and to take that curriculum and in, into in other social service agencies, you know, around the state, you know, the Urban League in Hartford and the Community Action Agency in New Haven. Jackie, where'd the name come from? What's the Ice House? So the Ice House model is basically as an entrepreneur, you it's 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 a niche business. You build your business based on the need. And there was um, a gentleman who was in a town and the town needed ice. So he built an ice house. Uh, you meet the needs of the community and that's how you build your business. You don't we don't need 10 more corner stores or 10 more McDonald's or 10 more package stores. But what are the real needs of the community and how do you, again, monetize that idea um, and meet the needs of the community as an entrepreneur and as a business owner? With regard to uh, to that, Jackie, you spent more than a little time uh, in the halls of uh, public service. Somebody said, uh, if you saw the way laws were made, you know, you'd run away screaming. It's like making sausage or something. Um, so you know how it works inside there. You certainly know how it works in the private community. Look, there's not going to be a lot of money sloshing around in this economy uh, once we come out from under this pandemic. Are we getting the kind of cooperation from the private sector and the political sector to address these problems, these enormous problems? I am very hopeful with this current administration. Um, I do think we will begin to see the dollars coming into the community. However, once they get um, to the community, it is 
um, up to us to ensure that they are utilized and go where they are needed. And often you don't see that, right? So um, I think we need to continue to advocate for resources. And I think we need to continue to communicate our needs, wants, and desires with elected officials in regards to um, what the community needs, what the community wants, and how that is going to work. I, I'm, I'm astonished that there's still an argument over uh, with regard to how big, how big you should go here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mind boggling to me that we should see the biggest problem in maybe a hundred years mm -hmm. and have people advocating that smaller is better than you got a big problem. You go at it big time. Right. So, yeah, I hope they do. But you're right. Once the floodgates for money start trickling down, once they get to the level you guys work at, it's incumbent that you make sure it gets where it's got to go. Exactly. It's exactly. It's incumbent that we all ensure that it gets where it goes. All right. Finally, with regard to, this, to the mental health thing, I want to swing that back uh, to this now. Germana, what, what's happening with, reg uh, with regard to homelessness in New Haven? It couldn't have gotten any better because of this. Unfortunately, New Haven has been a, how can I put it? It's been a, a hub for homelessness. And so we've taken on the lion's share of the state's homeless population uh, with the, a number of shelters. And, and unfortunately, they've closed. And so um, they've been housing them in uh, hotels. Um, and then with the combination of COVID and, and substance abuse, you know, I was just drove by one of the warmest centers yesterday and, and, the, and the ambulance were just rolling in because people are, we, we had three deaths yesterday you know, that happened right in the hotels. And, um, you know, it, it, it's an all time high, you know, amongst that population. And so it's tough, you know, and um, yeah. kids, you know, that had the opiate problem that came down from the suburbs and because you New know, Haven hosts a lot of the homeless population, um, it's just really bad. And the other area that impacts homelessness profoundly is that uh, mental illness is huge component as to why some people wind up on the street we have now serious schizophrenics who are homeless and they're on the streets and among the other disparities that i think has occurred you tell me if i'm wrong is that there seems to be some wider perception that schizophrenia is now a black disease do you, do you know what i mean well, I mean, I think that, you know, what happens in the African-American community, because mental illness is seen as something that's taboo in some of the earlier medications like Thorazine, you know, kind of put people in, in zombie mode. And so yep. um, they didn't uh, access, you know, mental health services. And so, like I was talking about the disparities in just accessing health in undergraduate work, when it came to mental health uh, access, it was almost like taboo. And so... Uh, again, you know, they don't go in, you know, when, um, you know, w w the mental health is a level of stress and anxiety or even depression. And then by the time that, you know, it becomes um, diagnosed, it, it's usually acute stage of schizophrenia or, you know, bipolar depression and some, you know, major um, affect that um, usually requires, you know, heavy duty medication and hospitalization. Well, whenever you tackle something as large as this issue of uh, a mental health crisis and the disparities racially in that regard, there's never enough time to really do the topic justice. But I do want to thank both of you for the time we have had together. And we'll have you back again real soon. 
uh, Germano, Kimbrough, and uh, Jackie James. Big topic, not a lot of time, uh, but I, I, I want to leave people with my impression of what I've just heard, and this really is encouraging. You guys are hopeful. I am very hopeful. I well, am. Well, I mean, I'm I'm extremely grateful to retreat, you know, because um, there are community beds there that are available. And so as I do outreach and engagement work, you know, I got somebody that I can pick up the phone and say, you know, I have somebody that needs a bed and, you know, Jackie can make that bed available, you know, through retreat. And so uh, that's a start, you know. Terrific, guys. Thanks so much. And I uh, hope I can call upon you again continue uh, your, your, your really valuable work. That, and catch you next time on The Corner, okay? Studies show that 2020 has negatively affected the mental health of millions of Americans. That is why at Retreat, we work to provide comprehensive mental health programming through our Synergy Health programs. To learn more about Synergy and the comprehensive mental and behavioral health services we offer, call us today at 855-802-6600. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, on the Behavioral Corner.